Well, it is a joy to be back with you. Uh, last week, um, my family, we were out of town. We were actually visiting a Trinity Bible in Morgan Hill, which is not too far from here, but the saints there greet you. It was just so neat to be uh, with another body, to be with Pastor Manny, to sit under the word as he proclaimed it last week and just encouraged and uh, just interesting to, to hear another church body um, be so thankful for uh, a Bible-believing, Bible-expositing church here on the peninsula. And so um, many that I talked to, uh, they wanted to send their regards and uh, let us know that they will begin to pray for us now that they know that we're here. So uh, that was a joy. It was also great to meet uh, some new people here this morning. Uh, our hope is that you are blessed by uh, your time of worship with us um, today. Now, normally, we're walking through a, a book in the Bible, and we're just moving through it expositionally. We uh, will find ourselves, Lord willing, in Philippians chapter 3 next Sunday, but uh, this Sunday, we're doing something different. And so let me begin by asking this question. What is God's design and his desire for mankind? What is God's design and desire for mankind? Now, as Christians, we believe that God created man, male and female. He created them in his likeness. And if you look at our mission statement, we say this every week, that the reason why we exist is for his glory. There's no other creature in all of the universe that has this particular and special privilege to image the creator and to fellowship with him and enjoy him, and to delight in him. And so we say image-bearing is unique, but not everyone sees it that way. Some say we're nothing more than matter, byproducts of the Big Bang, purposeless protoplasm evolved by an accident over just a long period of time and chance. And as you know, those are two diametrically opposed worldviews. The biblical worldview, which says that our good God created us with a good purpose and a good design. And then there's the evolutionary humanistic worldview that contends that we are nothing more than purposeless. And those two worldviews, as many of you know, they've been on a collision course for quite some time. And at the center of the debate is language, language. You know, growing up, I grew up, uh, born in the 70s, grew up in the 80s. I always imagined what 2020 would look like, watching uh, Back to the Future, thinking about, you know, cool shoes and hoverboards and flying cars. But never did I imagine that we would be fighting over words like we are today. Fighting over words like male and female, boys and girls, man and woman, husband and wife, mom and dad. I just saw a report last night that Microsoft Word is now going to correct politically incorrect language as you type. You say, well, what constitutes politically incorrect language? Any gender bias, any gender-specific language, any sexual orientation bias. So apparently, it's not appropriate 
to call someone the mailman anymore. He's the mail carrier. And you got to make sure you get the spelling right. Mail, M-A-I-L, carrier. You can't even say he is. We have to say he's a, well, you can't say he. You have to say human. This human being is a M-A-I-L carrier. Mankind will be changed to humankind. Manpower, don't say that anymore. It's workforce. And you can no longer call her your heroine, just hero. George Orwell, in his book, 1984, warned that a society that is able to control language will also be able, eventually, to control the mind. In another book called Politics and the English Language, Orwell said, if thoughts can corrupt language, language can also corrupt thoughts. And this is exactly where we find ourselves today in a fight for language. Now, the reason why we're taking a little detour from our study in the book of Philippians is because of the recent news that took place in Canada with the passing of the C4 bill. And I was on a, a Zoom call just the other week with Pastor John MacArthur and a number of other pastors, some from Canada. And Dr. MacArthur was urging pastors to step into the pulpit on this very day and proclaim from God's word what his original design is for males and females and marriage and sexuality. But this C4 bill that was passed just last Saturday is important. God's goodness and the goodness of his design are under direct attack. And we, as the church, need to know how to respond. We need to be confident. We need to be courageous. We need to be compassionate. But we need to respond so as we think about this topic, the subject of sexuality, uh, I want to come at it with the angle of, Lord, fill us with wisdom and grace and humility. And so let's pray now that he would grant that to us. Father, as we approach this topic, we do pray for those things, that your spirit would be guiding and leading and directing and even convicting and helping us to be the kind of compassionate, loving caring, convictionally driven people who stand on the authority of your word. So please be our help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now listen, as Christians, I don't want us to be all about what the Bible prohibits. I want us to be about the beauty and the majesty and the glories that the Bible proclaims. I have a friend who's a pastor who said, no soul can be healthy when it condemns more than it confesses. We don't want to be known as people that just attack things and go after things and make people feel bad about things. We want to point people to the majesty of Christ. And so here's our main idea, just trying to encapsulate it in one sentence. What I want you to walk away with today, it would be this. The glory and goodness of God is seen and enjoyed best when we understand that he created us, male and female, in his image, and he created the institution of marriage to be a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, which is permanent, sacred, intimate, mutual, and exclusive. Let me say it again. The glory and goodness of God is seen and enjoyed best 
When we understand that he created us, male and female, in his image, and he created the institution of marriage to be a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, which is permanent, sacred, intimate, mutual, and exclusive. And we argue as Christians that when individuals and entire societies embrace God's definition as revealed in the scriptures, when we live by this design, then what happens is we experience the blessing that comes from that obedience. And we even thrive and flourish as a society. And so the church needs to stand up and affirm and proclaim this biblical truth. And again, to do it in a spirit of love and conviction and compassion. Here's our outline for us this morning. I believe it's in your notes, but just in case, why is God's good design being addressed? That's the first thing that we're going to answer this morning. And then the second thing, what does the Bible actually say about God's designs? So just two points to hang our hats on. Let's begin. Why is God's good design for males and females and marriage being addressed? Well, as I mentioned, Last Saturday, January 8th, this historic piece of legislation was passed and was passed unanimously by the members of the Canadian Parliament. It is called the C4 Bill. Now, I'm just going to read the preamble. Uh, I cut out a couple pages of notes because there was a lot I wanted to say and I can't say it. You look it up for yourself and familiarize yourself with it, but let me read the preamble to you. I believe it's up here on the screen. This is what it says. Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to the persons who are subjected to it, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over the sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. And whereas in light of those harms, it is important to discourage and denounce the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity and equality of all Canadians. Now, therefore, Her Majesty, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate and House of Commons of Canada, enacts the following. And then from there, it goes on to give the criminal code. The bill threatens up to five years in prison if you're practicing this conversion therapy, as well as two years in prison for anyone who dares to advertise. And on top of all the bills are all the, the fines that they will give you. Now, you read that and you first of all, I should say, well, what in the world's conversion therapy? And that's part of the problem. Because there is a lack of clarity what constitutes conversion therapy. The, the definition, I believe, is vague, and how one breaks the law is also ambiguous. You might be all for the law, or you might be all against the law. It kind of depends on what, what this is. Uh, let me read to you UCLA School of Law, Williams Institute, they say this about conversion therapy. Historically, this includes a range of techniques that have been used by both healthcare professionals and religious figures seeking to change people's sexual orientation or gender identity. 
Currently, talk therapy is the most commonly used therapy technique. Some practitioners have also used aversion treatments such as inducing nausea, vomiting, or paralysis, providing electric shock, or having the individual snap an elastic band around the wrist when the individual becomes aroused to same-sex erotic images or thoughts. Other practitioners have used non-aversion techniques such as attempting to change thought patterns by reframing desires redirecting thoughts, or using hypnosis. So again, you read that and you say, well, duh, I'm all for that. Uh, shock therapy, inducing nausea, snapping your wrist with a rubber band. I'm not about that because that stuff does not work. It is not helpful. Those are dangerous. I think we'd all affirm, but... If you were telling me that I cannot open up God's holy word and tell someone what God says about the male and female and marriage, well, that's where we have a problem. If biblical counseling, if preaching God's word falls under the umbrella of talk therapy, then there's major conflict. You see, according to the bill, anyone who attempts to change, to repress, to reduce someone's sexual orientation or gender identity will be punished. Even if an adult willingly seeks out help and cannot get it, or he cannot get it. So not only will you be punished for advertising, you can come here and you can help, or we can help you. You can't pursue it, even if you want to, because it's punishable by law. You know, it's interesting because there are several people that knew uh, that I was going to be taking on this subject this week, and they said, man, pastor, whew, that's tough. It must be hard to be a pastor. Thankful I'm not a pastor. Thankful you are. Thankful you're saying something. And, and, and real quickly, it was kind of like, this is on you. And I, I just want to say this is for everybody. Everybody. It's not just for pastors. It's for parents. It's not just for Christian counselors. It's for all Christians. In fact, it's even for non-Christians if you hold to this traditional orthodox understanding of God's design. It's terrifying. Because now it's backed by the government backed by the criminal code, backed by the queen herself. And of course, you realize, right, this is all one-sided because it's perfectly legal to counsel someone, to provide treatment, to even provide procedures to change, repress, or reduce someone's sex biologically. That's okay. No fines there. No imprisonment threats there. When you say, hey, that's a bummer for our brothers and sisters in Canada, we need to get together and we need to pray for them. Did you know that this is true in the United States? That 20 states have already adopted this as well as the District of Columbia. They've banned the practice of conversion therapy a long time ago. Did you know that? You know what, what state started it? California. Here's the difference. In the U.S., this ban is only for minors and other religious liberties protect us because after all, we're, we're the United States, right? But if you're raw-rawing 
the land of the free, the home of the brave, and you don't think that this is going to come our direction, you're sadly mistaken. It is just a matter of time. President Biden, Vice President Kamala, they're very clear about their promotion and celebration of the LGBTQ rights. We've all felt the pressure. You see it without looking for it because it is all over the television, the media, it's in the schools, the universities, all the way down to kindergarten. It's in the libraries. It's part of the mandatory training when you get a job. It's everywhere. The U.S. doesn't want to be a nation under God. It wants to promote and even put into law its atheistic worldviews And this is exactly why Christians need to speak up and defend God's word. Did you hear the preamble? They are saying that your God is a myth. They are saying that the Bible is not authoritative. This is no subtle attack. This is an in-your-face attack. But listen, We know better, don't we? The Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God, and it is the sole authority for all matters of life and godliness. And the only reason there is a growing tendency of people to affirm the LGBTQ ideology is because of ignorance of what the Bible says or a failure to submit to the totality of Scripture. You see, it's becoming increasingly more and more, and wrongly too, but it's becoming increasingly more popular to say that the Bible actually defends and promotes and propagates this kind of thinking and lifestyle. So-called evangelical Christians are even preaching from pulpits that this is God's desire and design. But listen, I want all of us here at Grace Church Monterey Bay to be able to address these arguments head on, not shy away, not just look to the pastor, but to be able to address these things. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to transition and look at six of those big passages that address this issue. And just two things to say as we begin. One, um, we cannot exhaust expositionally these passages, so this is going to be a brief survey And number two, it is foolish to think that there's only six passages that address this issue. The whole of Scripture is consistent in its presentation of God's design for sexuality. But listen, if we don't correct wrong thinking, it's like my my friend and professor at Masters would always say, if you buy of you, you get a worldview for free. You keep buying into things, buying into the language, then you begin to develop an entire worldview. And so we must confront this, and we must understand the consequences of falling into it. So, point number two, what does the Bible say about God's good design for males and females? The first place we need to go is the beginning, Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2. You can turn there to Genesis 1 and read along with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is how the Bible begins, and it is beautiful. God the creator. Moses pens these 
first five books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But in the Genesis account, he, he recounts the history of creation. Before the world was created, there was God, eternally existing. Isaiah 45, verse 5 says this, I am Yahweh, and there is no other beside me. There is no other God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising to the setting of the sun, there is no one beside me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Our true and living God existed from all of eternity, and he existed in perfect fellowship with the Son and the Spirit and God spoke, and the universe came into existence. And Genesis 1 goes on to recount how God created all things that existed in the heavens above and the earth beneath. And we know that Jesus is God because Colossians 1 says, For in him, that is in Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, and everything that God created, the Bible says, was what? Good. And then God does something astonishing. After he creates the all-sufficient God, who lacks nothing, the all-satisfying God, the one who enjoys perfect fellowship and harmony with the Son and the Spirit's, he does something remarkable. It says that he creates man from the dust of the earth. He creates man in the imago Dei, in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26. Look, that, look at that with me. Reads this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then you flip on over to Genesis chapter 2. And God repeatedly calls his creation good. This is good. This is good. This is good. But 2.18, he says, this is not good. It's not good that man should be alone. God looks at the solitary male and says to himself, I'm not finished. Immediately after this, God brought all the beasts of, and the birds to Adam, and Adam has the privilege of naming them. And so he starts going hippopotamus and giraffe and monkey, and he just goes. But what he sees, what he recognizes, is that there is no helper that is suitable for him. Adam understood that it was not good for him to be alone. And notice that God does not just say that Adam needs to have a suitable companion. He says, I will give a suitable helper. And so the question we ask is, well, in what sense was Eve a helper? Did Adam just need someone to do the dishes and clean up after him? That is not what the Bible teaches. What it teaches is that man is not complete without the woman. There's biological inference to that. As image bearers, they need one another. 
They were specifically made for each other. And so the Lord throws Adam into a deep sleep. And you know the story. He removes the rib from the side. He closes the flesh back up. He takes that rib. He fashions the woman. He brings the woman to the man. And then we find the first recorded words of man in Genesis 2.23. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha because she was taken from Ish. Again, why did God create a woman for Adam? Was it just so that he wouldn't be lonely? Well, that's part of it. Or was it so that he could enjoy a relationship? That is also part of it. But you see, in order for image-bearing to be complete, he could not be alone. And the union couldn't be with another man. Now, you've heard that, that statement, he didn't create Adam and Steve. You also know that he didn't create Adam and Eve and Yvette and Eleanor and Yvonne because it is not about multiple wives. It is not about just another man. It's not about just friendship. God's good design is that you would have one distinct yet complementary helper that will allow man to continue to reproduce and to continue to image bear. That is why we reject the notion that marriage is some sort of social construct. The Bible tells us very clearly that the first marriage was a part of God's good design and he actually officiated it. And this holy union is intended to reflect God's very own nature and his relationship within the Godhead. Animals, not good enough. A buddy, a partner, a friend, not good enough. What Adam needed was a perfect complement. The man needed a woman, distinct yet the same, perfectly complementary, biologically, emotionally, spiritually. That is the way that God intended it. And the Bible goes on to reveal that God, he He's the one that thought about sex. He created it, and he created it good and for man and woman's enjoyment. <laughs> Amen. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is a very positive command. It is a good command, so we don't shy away from it, but we celebrate it because this is part of God's good design. One man, one woman in a relationship to propagate the human race and to image God. And listen, any divergence or detour away from that does not lead to fulfillment. It leads to frustration. It doesn't lead to pleasure. It leads to pain. And that's exactly what happened in the garden. Because Satan, you know, comes to Eve and tells her, you can be like God. Not godly, but God-like. You can make your own decisions. You can have wisdom and power and authority and autonomy. 
And Satan tries to convince Adam and Eve that they can determine what is right and wrong for themselves. And you know what happens when they do that? What do I need God for? If God is not the standard, if what he says is not true, then I'll just go my own way, do my own thing. And that is exactly what happens. Since the fall, nothing has changed. Humanity willfully, stubbornly rejects God's standard of right and wrong, rejects the need for humble dependence upon him, and as so often the case, human beings, mankind, womankind, we want to do what's right in our own eyes. And all of that climaxes in Genesis 6. God sees the evil on the world. He says every intent of the thought of man's heart is on evil. He brings judgment onto the world. He floods in a global flood, but yet he preserves, he saves, he rescues Noah and his family. They come out, and there's hope, there's rest. And yet we see this again being climaxed in Genesis 19. Let's turn there. Genesis 19. Now, it's no coincidence that this is the first place where we see in the Hebrew Scriptures this idea of homosexuality in the Bible. Most of you, you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it really begins in chapter 18, when Jesus and two angels, they visit Abraham and they tell them in 1820, the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. Well, there's a problem here because Abraham loves his nephew Lot and his nephew Lot is there. And so Abraham begins to plead, you're not going to destroy it if there's 50 righteous people there. No, and you, you know the story. He, he works his way down all the way, 45, 30, 35, and all the way down to 10. No, I will not destroy it if there are 10 righteous people there. And so the angels arrive in Sodom. They're immediately greeted by the gate, uh, by Lot, and he quickly hides them in his house. Now look there at 19.4. It says this, Before they lay down, the men of the city... The men of Sodom, they surrounded the house from young to old, all the people from every quarter, and they called to Lot and said to them, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may yada, know them. Now the NASB translates that, bring them out that we may have relations with them. The NIV is a lot more straightforward. It says, bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Now, we don't have the time to dismantle all the hermeneutical gymnastics that people do with this passage. If you're looking for a good resource, though, Kevin DeYoung wrote a great book called What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality? James White has a book as well. There's, there's plenty more that I can, I can recommend to you. But know this. People have tried to say, well, the issue is not homosexuality, not even sexual sin, What's really at the heart of all this is inhospitality. That's the issue. That's why God judged. Or the real sin was not homosexuality, but the desire to, to gang rape, rape which, which of course is, is evil and wrong, and, and no one approves of that kind of behavior. Others would argue that the Hebrew word for no, yada, doesn't always mean sexual intimacy, and I would say yes and amen, that is correct. But in this context, it does, and so do other places in Genesis. Let me ask you just a few questions so we can think critically. Do you think that God would send two angels to destroy an entire city because of inhospitality? Maybe. Does it make sense that Lot would 
offer his own two daughters who he says are virgins. And we don't want to go into all the details of that. That was wrong and foolish. But he offers up his two daughters instead in order to protect these angels. But more than that, what do you do with the New Testament account looking back to Genesis 19? Jude, chapter 1, verse 7, says this, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these in gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. I think Jesus' brother Jude understood real clearly what the sin of Sodom was. And then there's Peter. 2 Peter 2 and verse 6 says this, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, verse 7, and if he rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. This could hardly be a description of just a mere lack of hospitality. Since that word sensual that Peter uses here is sexual debauchery. Well, let's take a look at two other Old Testament texts. These are are extremely clear and they are extremely hated because they are extremely clear and they're found in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. You've heard this, just a reminder to know where it's at. Leviticus 18, 22. And you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. Why? It is an abomination. He, he goes on in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the moral code here. Also, you shall not lie with an animal to be made unclean with it, nor shall you any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. So do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. This is the practice of the neighboring nations. This is not to be found among you, the children of Israel, the Old Testament economy. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Listen. It is very clear, God hates homosexuality. He abhors it. Why? Because it's a distortion of his good design. And back then, it was clear that this was even punishable by death. That is how serious this sin is. And I'm sure that you have heard many objections to these passages, that well, what God really found abominable was the, the Canaanite cultic practices. And yes, we also affirm that those are wrong and, and immoral and, and abominable. But listen, he is talking, Moses, he's talking to Israel. There's also some who say, well, Christians are no longer under the law. And you've heard this argument. And, and we don't have to Obey the Levitical commands. And this one right here is a favorite from people in Hollywood and the media. In fact, I remember 
I used to show this to my high school students, that episode of The West Wing, some of you might remember, with Martin Sheen. Some of you um, might recall the, the, the setting is he is in a room, he's given an announcement, there is a, uh, a Christian woman who's sitting down, she doesn't stand up to pay respect, so they're really painting this Christian as a, a bad person. But this is what happens, this is the exchange. Uh, Martin Sheen is the U.S. president. He looks at her and says, I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? And while thinking about that, can I ask another question? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says that he should be put to death. So am I morally obligated to kill him myself? Or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important because we've got a lot of sports fans in town. Touching the skin of dead pigs makes one unclean, Leviticus 11.7. So if they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different cops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads. And I remember how everyone responded. Yes, finally. Hollywood has smashed this stupid Christianity stuff. That's just a lack of understanding of the Bible. You see, what they fail to understand is there's a big difference between dietary laws, ceremonial laws, and then the universal moral laws. And you say, well, how do I know the difference? Well, does the New Testament reaffirm those laws? Many honest LGBTQ advocates, they know better. They've looked at the Old Testament and they can see that the, New, the Old Testament for certain denounces homosexuality. Those who are faithful and understand logic and hermeneutics say you can't really get around it. The Bible's clear in the Old Testament, but that is the Old Testament. What about the new? What about Jesus? And you know what the primary argument is? You show me right now. You open up your Bible and you show me where Jesus one time con condemns homosexuality. Go ahead, show me. Sh show me the Bible verse because you can't find it. And they make this argument that you won't see it, Jesus in the New Testament, that actually Jesus affirms and maybe even encourages that kind of lifestyle. How do you respond to that, Christian? This argument of silence. Well, Jesus didn't have to give a special sermon on homosexuality because listen, all of his listeners understood that that behavior was prohibited in the Pentateuch. Not only that, but every opportunity that Jesus spoke on creation and marriage, he constantly reaffirmed God's original design and intent. So when you read Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, his whole teaching on marriage is rooted and grounded back in the Pentateuch in Genesis. So in Matthew 19 and verse 6, it says, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Obviously, they understood what marriage was because 
Is it lawful for a man to divorce his what? His wife. What is Jesus' response in verse 4? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, now just follow me here, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. See, Jesus is ultra clear. He knows the difference between man and woman and mother and father and what marriage is. And what we learn is that God is the author, not man. We cannot redefine. Same-sex marriage, listen, is not marriage because that is not the way that God defined it. And when someone argues, well, Jesus never mentioned homosexuality, so he must have been okay with it, you can just politely and, and graciously and compassionately say, can you please show me the place where Jesus condemns idolatry? Where does Jesus say idol, idolatry, idolatrous? He doesn't, not one time. And are we to assume that Jesus is perfectly okay and encourages and champions idolatry because he never uses that word? I mean, the, the, the logic of that argument is, is obvious. And this is not trying to be a jerk. It's just that this is the reality. Jesus also doesn't mention bestiality. He doesn't mention rape. He doesn't mention incest. He doesn't mention nuclear warheads. There's a lot of things that he doesn't mention that doesn't mean that he's perfectly okay with those things. We know that he's not because every time he defines a relationship between a man and a woman, he goes right to Genesis. On top of that, he talks a lot about this idea of porneia. That word is just broad. It encompasses every kind of sexual sin. So, so just so you know that Jesus isn't just fundamentally or principally first opposed against homosexuality, it's any deviation so if you're sitting here and you're having sex with your girlfriend, Jesus would have a word for you because she's not your wife. If you have a husband or a wife and you're cheating on that individual, Jesus would have a word for you. He's not singling things out. So Jesus, he does address this issue. He does so repeatedly. And when he does, he does it from all of Scripture. It is also a fallacy to think that if it's not in the red letters, then Jesus doesn't say it. Why? Because Jesus speaks through all of the Scripture. All of the Scripture. The prophets, the apostles, the law, the writings, the poetry. In fact, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 is this. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill, for truly I say to you, until when heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven." So we can't put Jesus at odds with the Old Testament, and we can't put Jesus at odds with other New Testament writers. Well, what are 
other New Testament writers say, turn to Romans chapter 1. When we open up that New Testament, and when we start reading the words of Paul, what we realize is that there's perfect cohesion and perfect harmony on this very topic. Start with me in verse 18. This is Paul's letter to the Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For, and he does the same thing, he goes back to where? Creation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now pay attention here. Verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What's the consequence? Therefore, therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies will be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the males abandoned the natural function of the female and they burned in their desire toward one another. Males with males committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now what's striking as you read through Romans is these verb clauses that just scream autonomy. What is the result of an autonomous, independent, I am going to do what I want, when I want, with who I want, and no one is going to tell me that I can't? What is the result of that kind of attitude? God gives you over to your lust. And so you begin to dishonor your own body. And you begin to worship the creature rather than the creator. You see, what happens here is Romans harkens back to Genesis chapter 1. And it is a haunting literary echo to chapter 3. Eve was so attracted, so allured, so compelled to take of the fruits Her appetites were strong, and so she takes and gives to her husband. And sometimes people portray Adam as kind of like this gullible dummy who just goes along with it, when in fact, Adam was the one that was supposed to be protecting his wife. Adam is the one that was supposed to kick that stupid serpent in the head and tell her, no, this is what God's word says. The most loving thing that Adam could have done in that moment was direct his wife's attention to the scriptures, to God's word. You see, when you exchange the glory of God for an idol, what ultimately happens is you exchange God for self. And you become your own God. What is supposed to be the most desirable and the most treasured reality in all the universe, God 
you've made a cheap exchange and you've put yourself there. Now listen, again, just so I'm clear, Romans 1, it doesn't conclude with the idea that homosexuality is the worst of all sins, that it is the unpardonable sin. Look at verse 28. It crescendos in this. If you want to live your own way, if you want to reject God's authority, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper, having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the righteous requirements of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Condemnation comes even for people who just approve of it. It is not the unpardonable sin. It's one of the many that is just a manifestation of this autonomy that we see in Romans 1. But it is a visible picture of turning to yourself. Listen, homosexuality is consequential. It's not causal. Does that make sense? It is a consequence of a mentality, of a heart posture, of an attitude toward God. It flows from wanting to be your own God. And that is a very important distinction because homosexuality is not a biological issue. What it is, it's bypassing God's word, his will, and his design in favor for our own desires. You say, well, Dom, wait a second here. I've been in these debates and talks, and I have friends and family and loved ones, and then they say, well, I didn't choose to be gay, or, 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 or God made me this way, and I didn't have a choice in the matter. How do you respond to that? Well, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 6. Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkard, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But look at verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And the very, very important word that is in this text is that word, were. Not are, but were. It's the imperfect tense, which means that this was the continuing action at one point, at one time, but when the grace of God came to you and you responded to the truth and obeyed the truth, that changed. You were washed, regenerated, sanctified, justified. Now, I told my wife this morning because <clears throat> I walked by her and I'm like, man, you're like as tall as me. I, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm shrinking. Because my, my example was going to be, I can't change my height, but I think I'm actually shrinking. 
But listen, I, I can't, I'm, I'm Hispanic. I can't change that. I was born that way. I have brown eyes. I, I can't change that. I have an XY chromosome. I, I can't change that. I'm a male. I, get, I can't change that. It's not the same with homosexuality. It's not biologically binding. The reality is, is these are decisions. I am born a sinner. I have propensity towards certain sins. I can choose to act on those things or I can choose not to. And it is the same. Now listen, you take those passages, and so much more could be said about those passages, but you take those passages and you begin to realize, wait a second, the Bible is one unified story. Creation, marriage, sexuality. There's not six verses on this. There's thousands. And this issue strikes right at the heart of God's great redemptive plan. The whole storyline from Genesis to Revelation, the very distinction of differentiation is rooted in the very being of God. Why? Because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the reason why this is such serious sin, trying to rename our, our identity, is because it attacks and it attempts to redefine the family relationships that God has forever established. It tries to redefine even the distinctions within the Godhead. This attempt to destroy the most basic and fundamental distinction between male and female as God's image bearers is, listen to this, an attempt to diminish the covenantal relationship that God has with his own people. Our being made in the image of God and this beautiful picture of one man, one woman, that's the biblical definition, has always been intended to display God's character, God's relationship to the church. It's meant to display the gospel. You say, Dom, how do you know that? Well, because the Bible begins with a wedding. Adam and Eve. God marries himself to his wife in a covenant of marriage to Israel. And despite Israel's continued unfaithfulness and adultery, idolatry, God pursues and loves and forgives unconditionally. When Jesus is born a man to a mother and he has a father, we also understand that he has two um, well, he's got how many brothers and sisters? I don't know, but he's got brothers and sisters. The first miracle is performed at a wedding between a male and a female. John the Baptist, Jesus himself, call him the bridegroom. The church is called the bride. And Paul repeatedly gives these instructions in Ephesians to mothers and fathers and to sons and daughters and to wives and husbands. And then you go all the way to the end of the book of the Bible. And the thing that we sing about and we look forward to is that beautiful day where we will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride is with the bridegroom once and for all. And so listen, do you see that at the very heart of all of this, this isn't about a few obscure passages of Scripture or some prudish, outdated, archaic Christians with an old, crusty book 
The, the reality is that this is the very root of our relationship with God. If these distinctions break down, the very covenantal nature of God becomes meaningless. There is no father. There is no son. There is no bride. And listen, just so I'm very clear, this has always been Satan's diabolical attack to destroy the family. Karl Marx states, and he states this very plainly, he wanted a radical egalitarian world where distinctions were destroyed. He says this, the earthly family is discovered as the secret of the holy family. The former must be itself theoretically and practically destroyed. You see, once the gospel is gutted of its core elements, you destroy the nuclear family. You destroy the nuclear family, you confuse even the very nature of God. And listen, what is so sad about all this is that for centuries, even millennium, there's been no contest. But in these last days, you have people preaching, saying this is okay, saying this is right, saying this is Jesus' will, saying this is God's design. Our culture is rapidly declining, and the only thing that we can do in response is to stand up and say, no, this is what God's word says. And it can't just be pastors and elders and church leaders. It has to be every single Christian who is advocating for a return to the authority of God's word. We have a responsibility, church, to uphold the truth. And so whether you have a legislation or a country or a state or a king or a queen come and say that this is the way it is, but it's in contradiction to the Bible, we have to say, no, I disagree. This is what the Bible actually says. Psalm 50, verse 16, reads this, But to the wicked, God says, What right do you have to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? Everyone, everyone, we sang it, everyone at one point is going to have to bow the knee to King Jesus. Acts 17, 31 says this, He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That one that was raised from the dead, he's the only one that gets to define what a man and a woman and what marriage is, and no one else. He has the authoritative and last word because it's by his word that he's holding the whole universe together. Jesus is the one. Let us make man in our own image. Listen, church, do you have the confidence to defend from the Bible this message? Francis Schaeffer once said, Drift along from generation to generation, and the morally unthinkable becomes thinkable as the years move on. That is what Paul says. That is what the scriptures say. That in the last days, people will begin even more so to call evil good and good evil. And I think that is exactly where we're at. So what do we do as a church? Do we just kind of take it? Do we just shut up? Do we close our church doors? Do we be quiet? Don't preach this kind of stuff from the pulpit? Well, that would mean that we would be unfaithful. Anytime someone tries to redefine or replace God's good plan for humanity, 
It is our responsibility not just to step up and say, you're wrong, but to say, God has an infinitely better plan. And because of this sin, this is why God himself came to this world. Because all of us are fallen and broken and have a propensity to sin. And I don't think that I'm any better than a homosexual. Uh, my testimonies in 1 Corinthians 6 I was sexually deviant. I was a liar and a swindler and a hater and disrespectful and dishonoring to my parents. But God, because of his grace, had mercy upon my soul. And I recognized that there's nothing that I can do to earn his favor, nothing I can do to earn his acceptance. The only thing that I can do is believe his word that I am a sinner and I have no right, no right or claim to heaven apart from his grace. And God in his goodness offers that. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Do you understand that we, we have switched God for a lie? Jesus replaces that lie and says, I am the truth. Come to me. That is the message that we need to proclaim. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we can't sit here thinking that we've discovered the truth, that, that we're better than anybody, that, that we have somehow, some way, by our righteous actions and deeds, have earned a spot in heaven. Lord, we are simply beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. That bread is the bread of life. That light is Jesus that shines into darkness, that exposes our sin, but, but also points the way to the cross where ultimately all of our sins, past, present, future, no matter how grotesque, no matter how repeated, no matter how abusive, uh, no matter how much we've hurt people or hurt ourselves, there is forgiveness in Christ. Oh Lord, thank you so much that there is no amount of sin. We can't tally those things up and oh, we forfeit the opportunity at any time, at any place, if we acknowledge the depth of our sin, the depravity of our souls, our need for repentance and forgiveness, God, you are willing to forgive. Oh, Father, would you press that further and further upon our hearts? And for those that are here that have yet to bow the knee to King Jesus and, and those who know that they are living in sin and refuse to repent and unwilling to, to, to bow the, the knee of their heart, God, I pray that you would break down their pride that you would expose their sin. They would see the beauty of Christ and they would turn to him in faith. Father, your offer is free and it is good, but we don't know how long this offer remains. You are coming back. And Lord, we want you to come back quickly. And yet at the same time, Lord, we need to be about your business, making gospel uh, witness loud and clear so that people would hear Respond, turn to you, and be saved. Oh Lord, be our help. Help us to be a compassionate and merciful 
and truth-telling church. The, the, the greatest demonstration of love is not tolerance. It is not tolerant to sit by and watch people on the road to destruction. Love doesn't win if it doesn't have truth. And so we pray, God, that you would make us truth speakers, but to do so with all of the compassion and mercy and gentleness and affection of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.